You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Yep. Nice to talk to you, Kyla. Okay. Abrupt. <laughs> well, I can't do it. Nice to talk to me, we're, we're, we're both back in Vancouver, and we're, like, back and busy in the office, and here we are again. It's Thursday night. We're doing this by Zoom. Yeah. Um, I, I would prefer to be recording in the office. But, you know, you have a busy day. You were had your CBC thing this afternoon. Oh. You're, uh, you've got an appeal tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was doing a lot of running around today. So here we are in the evening. Busy lives, busy lawyers, and busy roadways lately. Lots of interesting driving stuff and driving-related stuff happening. Um, but... Before we get into some of the more recent news, I thought we'd talk about what we ran out of time to talk about last week, which was the Schmidt case from the Yukon Territorial Court. Uh, This case, uh, it was actually decided in July, but it was published very recently on Canley. A case involving an individual, Nichols Schmidt, uh, who was charged with impaired driving. And he filed a number of applications for remedies for breaches of his charter rights. Very interesting circumstances. There were essentially, um, I think, five breaches uh, that he alleged. The first being uh, that he was not given a valid approved screening device demand. The officers didn't have grounds to suspect there was alcohol in his body. The second, that the approved screening device demand that he was given was also not valid because it wasn't made immediately. Thirdly, that the officers um, violated his Section 7 charter rights by not preserving evidence in the case, specifically related to video. And and this arose from the officers in Yukon, for, for our listeners out there, are all equipped with body-worn... Uh, recording devices that are connected to the in-car camera system. And so all of the audio in their interactions with subjects typically is recorded by the officer. And it's also anything that happens in view of the camera in the police vehicle is captured on the camera. And anything that happens inside the police vehicles captured on an in-car camera facing the inside of the vehicle. And in Mr. Schmidt's case, among the, the arguments that he made was this argument that the officer who had failed to press the button to activate his audio recorder had failed to preserve relevant evidence and had violated Mr. Schmidt's Section 7 rights to make full answer and defense. There were a couple other breaches alleged, but those are the three that I want to talk about. Because the court in Schmidt makes a number of really interesting comments in relation to the these three issues you with me paul i'm with you there's so much in this decision that um we could probably pick it apart for a long time because it's i mean it's very smart 
I, I, my biggest concern here, you know, the biggest issue that I had was the reasonableness of the suspicion, um, where the police officer says, I'm taking into account the totality of the evidence, but doesn't explain what that constitutes. Yeah, the totality. That he said his last drink was four hours ago, or maybe that he had three drinks four hours, or maybe that he had three drinks four hours earlier. Yes. And in all of those cases, the question of whether or not there would be any alcohol in the individual's body at that point um, didn't give, didn't elevate to the point of a reasonable suspicion. And the judge said, look, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to look at these other things. But the officer didn't list them. And it's the reasonableness of the suspicion. And and the reasonable suspicion, of course, has to be objective and subjective. And you have to explain your grounds to justify why it would have been objectively held. You're, you're and simply saying the totality of the situation won't do it. Yeah, your subjective belief has to be articulated. The basis for your subjective belief has to be articulated. And then that subjective belief has to be objectively reasonable. And and the judge says, like, if you are going to make this decision when you've just pulled somebody over and you can make a mandatory demand without having to form this opinion, I don't understand. The judge says, I don't understand why you're making a suspicion demand. Yeah, paragraph two demands in the code. You can make a mandatory demand. It's there. The government wrote that into law um, if you do it correctly, you know, but still like here and, and I've been asking and I've posed this before on the podcast. Why are the police not making mandatory demands? Why are they training junior officers to try and form a suspicion? I can answer that. I can tell you why. Here is why they do it. First of all, as you and I have talked about before, the Alcoholics or FST manual always says, you know, you should try and form a suspicion first. And like, I don't know why, considering in pretty much every jurisdiction, excluding the Yukon so far, mandatory demands have been upheld. So who cares about trying to form a suspicion? But more importantly, I think it's it's an issue of fear that they're going to de-skill police officers. Because the reasonable suspicion standard is not unique to impaired driving. It is perhaps most argued and most articulated in law in impaired driving cases in relation to ASDs. But you see it when police officers are doing an investigative detention where they have to have a reasonable suspicion in circumstances where they might be conducting a sniffer dog search, which would require a reasonable suspicion. There are all sorts of situations in law in which an officer's formulation of a reasonable suspicion expands the powers that they have. And the best training ground that they get to learn the law on reasonable suspicion and learn how to articulate and develop a reasonable suspicion is in impaired driving cases because that's where they're having the most interaction with public. You're not doing a lot of sniffer dog searches. You're not doing a lot of drug busts. You're not going to do necessarily a ton of investigative detentions that are then going to be challenged. So when it comes time for those challenges to be run, they need to know how to articulate it. So, so you're saying what you're saying, and I'm not disputing this. I mean, I, it may be a factor, but what you're saying is that they are encouraged to be looking for reasonable suspicion for the purpose of of having those skills when the day comes 
when they have to do it. Yep. And that that may be a factor, but I don't think that is the main factor. I think the main factor is they feel that they need to be collecting evidence. This is their time pre-ASD where they can collect evidence um, and it's not going to be uh, used for the purpose of a criminal charge. And therefore they've got the person there. There's this little charter free zone that they've got for a minute or so. And I think they're trying to collect evidence that they know would not be necessarily acceptable after they've got their reasonable and probable grounds and have moved to the point of making a, a rest or a, a detention where they intend to collect evidence. So engaging 10B and the warning. I think they're trying to get the evidence at that point that they think they can't get later. And so they're trying to use the exploit the charter-free zone and they want to be able to pad that file to say, you know what, there was an odor of liquor. Yeah, but that evidence wouldn't be admissible as proof of anything. I know, but well, in an IRP context, you know, yeah, you know and I know that that they'll they'll put it in there and they and the superintendent of motor vehicles doesn't mind if the police violate charter rights. Generally. Like so I think they're I think they're just trying to collect that evidence. And they end up not doing it immediately because they spend their time doing it and they create a different standard. The standard they create is, I could not form a reasonable suspicion, therefore I made a mandatory demand. Not, I made a lawful stop, I did it immediately, I had an ASD there on me. Yeah. Um, so they create a different test. And the different test they create is, I couldn't form a reasonable suspicion, therefore I made a mandatory demand. They can walk right up to cars, even if they smell an odor of liquor on the person's breath, even if they see the person with a with a uh, an open can in their car, open uh, beverage container that likely contains alcohol, and they could make a demand right there, a mandatory demand right there, and it would be much harder to argue. They could say, I you know, made these other observations, I just was there, I did it immediately, I made a mandatory demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the judge says that Ricky goes on about that. He 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 says, "Look, I'm I cannot bring myself on the basis in this Schmidt case. I cannot bring myself to the conclusion that the police officer came to on the basis of what the police officer testified about, because you have to factor in elimination of alcohol from the body um, into the reasonableness of the suspicion. And that is not we have old cases about that, but we have not had any cases in the last." I don't know, 18 years, 15 years about on that issue. And it's something that I... Bro, I argued this in two cases in the BC Supreme Court. Mocked and Justin Neuberger. Yeah. Successfully. Okay, well, there you go. I just think of my old criminal cases like this, uh, where that issue was argued. Anyway. Um... Moving on to the ASD demand, because this is an even better judgment when it comes to the question of making an ASD demand immediately. You'd think that yeah. that four hours um, issue is um, is is great, but the the ASD demand is even better. So this is a case where one of the one of the questions was whether or not the ASD demand was read immediately. And the sequence of events that transpired is essentially after the officer gets this admission and makes the decision in his mind, I'm going to go do an ASD. 
He goes back to his police vehicle. He doesn't say to Mr. Schmidt, okay, now I'm detaining you for impaired driving. I'm going to do a breath test. Just got to go grab the device. I'll be right back. Hang tight. You're not free to go. Says nothing to him. Like the guy says three drinks four hours ago. It's not enough to lead him to think he's being investigated for impaired driving because it's not enough to give the officer a reasonable suspicion. So it's definitely not enough to inform Mr. Schmidt why he's been detained. And then the officer comes back. And because there's no audio recording, the timeline is really hard to discern from the point at which it crystallized in the officer's mind. So the court breaks it down by the number of seconds that elapsed. So at paragraph 85, the court says, from the video recording, it appears that approximately 36 seconds passed between Constable Fox returning to the driver's side door of the truck, leaving and returning with the ASD. There appears to be a conversation for 78 seconds, at which point Constable Fox is getting the uh, ASD ready to use. Uh, approximately 107 seconds later, Constable Fox is returning the ASD to its case. Even had he asked about alcohol consumption before going the truck to the from uh, from the truck to get the ASD from the police cruiser, the same delay would have occurred. And then he says, it is not too much to expect that police officers at least make reasonable efforts to comply with basic and rudimentary informational obligations that arise in an impaired driving uh, impaired driving investigation. This is not an onerous expectation, even in the often dynamic nature of policing. Now, this was, of course, not one of those really dynamic cases. You've got somebody who's very, very compliant, right? But like we're talking 36 seconds, 78 seconds, 107 seconds, like under a couple minutes. 3.68 minutes at the outset. And the court yeah. means that the ASD demand or equivalent, you know, 10A compliant information, if that had been provided earlier, earlier than those 3.68 minutes, then it would not have been a breach. But those 3.68 minutes that elapsed, too long, is good enough reach. Not immediate. And well, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Think about it. Upon arrest or detention. That's the language of the of the charter. You're entitled to your 10A. You're entitled to your 10B. We know this is a detention, right? Yeah. These things are suspended. The 10A component is supposed to be fulfilled with the demand. So it's upon detention. And, and in the criminal code, it says immediately. Yep. Basically upon detention. Yeah. So that's when it should happen. And, and... And it's just like those 10A cases where we see 10A cases that are only a few minutes, right? Um, and this is the same thing. And this is in, you know, the, 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 essentially the police thinking that it's a charter free zone and it's not, it's not, you're fulfilling the charter obligation of 10A by making the demand, you know, basically upon detention, um, immediately. And, and that's how you get around it and the police have persuaded themselves. Oh, no charter rights until after there's a fail. No, that's not the way it works. Yeah. Now on the failure to preserve the recording, the court does conclude that there is no breach of the charter right, but 
there is still very helpful commentary about what the obligation on police is. And, and the court ultimately finds in this case that the, the right wasn't breached because it was inadvertent. It wasn't deliberate. The officer didn't even realize he had to press a button to make the recording happen. Oops, he's too dumb to do it right, basically. Um, but the court, at paragraph 97, quotes from a, a decision of uh, Judge Chisholm, who entered a judicial state of proceedings in a different case where the officers failed to disclose a video and audio recording. And by the time they found the video and audio recording that had been created, the file had been corrupted. It was inoperable. And he said, look, like this isn't good enough. You have to preserve all of the relevant evidence. And Judge Cousins, who wrote Schmidt, says at paragraph 98, it is not a far leap from this to say that all reasonable steps should be taken by the Crown, i.e. the RCMP, to obtain all relevant evidence. And then he quotes, he says, as, as Judge Chisholm stated in paragraph 16, the more relevant the evidence in question, the greater the expectation that the police or Crown will make careful efforts to preserve it. Again, I would add in front of the word preserve, the words obtained and could be inserted. I do not say this as a legal requirement. I say it as a matter of common sense in order to allow investigations to proceed with the best information available. I don't think that there's anything really novel about that, um, but it's a very clear statement about it. There is. Like, there aren't, aren't cases that say, like, essentially that police have to actually go out, not just to to disclose the things that they have and not just to preserve the things that they get for disclosure, but also that they actually have to go out and make the efforts to to gather the evidence in the first place. And remember that... It's well, ensure their equipment's working and recording. You know, the, 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 the reason it exists, right? Like there's no purpose behind having it there. But extend this logic to other things that we see that police often don't get, right? Like the disclosure obligation, the Section 7 protected right there to disclose, to preserve, to provide all relevant evidence isn't just inculpatory evidence that proves you guilty. It's also the exculpatory evidence. You know, how many well, times... Now, this is a problem with the IRP scheme, right? Where police are never cross-examined, so they don't seem to realize it. Yeah. Uh, and all they record in their reports is the as the things that support their theory of the case. They don't record anything else. And then in the occasions where we get video, um, you know, where our clients have recorded it, sometimes our clients are horrible and they destroy their own case. But other times when they're quiet about it or that you know they're not they're not difficult you get it and you see the police officer has failed to disclose all sorts of material things because their only focus is on what can be observed that would suggest guilt yes and that's the only thing they record um you know here of course the court's saying look you've got these tools to properly record the interaction and here you're not using them or preserving them it's not not an excuse yes yeah when you say that it's like you're not listening to me no i'm listening 
I, I'm, I don't. You're, or you're formulating something, you're thinking about something. Well, I'm just thinking through like your comparison to the IRP scheme is, IRP scheme isn't entirely apt because I'm thinking about the implications of this in other criminal investigations. Like I've had cases, for example, where witnesses show up and assist the police with an arrest or assist the police in whatever it is that they're doing. And then those witnesses leave and the police don't bother to get their names. Right. And those are people that have relevant evidence to give. And the police didn't preserve that evidence of a material witness to the facts in issue. And I think that there is, you know, that this judgment opens up the door to to arguing that that's a charter violation. You know, where where somebody might say to the police officer, check my um, check my uh, my cell phone in a traffic ticket case, like a like a, a distracted driving case. Check my phone. I wasn't I wasn't um, using my phone. And the police officer doesn't do that. Or. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. In care and control cases. Look at my phone. My buddy's on his way to pick me up. See his text messages. And they don't do it. They don't look. They don't preserve. They have the right on an arrest to look at the cell phone incident to that arrest. But they don't do it. They're not obtaining the exculpatory evidence. And I think when the police fail to investigate exculpatory things that an accused says or that occur or that they become aware of, it can be a Section 7 breach. I think back to a heavy-duty one that we ran a few years ago in Abbotsford and it was heavy enough that the police went and got statements from all sorts of people who were around and they could have got more statements, I suppose. But when we ultimately had those witnesses on the witness stand, um, you, you couldn't make, you could, you couldn't figure out what the hell happened, mm -hmm. um, because it was so contradictory from all of these different witnesses. And of course the police evidence was also contradictory. Everybody's trying to piece together what happened because it was a collision and it was an after the fact, you know, some people heard things, some people ran out, some people th thought they saw something and, and maybe didn't. And, and I suspect that, um, you know, the word goes out after trials like that, that they don't want to investigate those things. Um, because again, you know, like, look at the, how, <laughs> look how well we use that. I'm sorry, but if you are, if you are in a, a free and democratic society that requires you as a, a part of the crown writ large to provide all of the disclosure, including exculpatory evidence, then you not wanting to know is just not good enough. Well, no, I'm not excusing them. I'm saying this is the, the results. And so the message must go out to them. Um, you know, maybe we don't want to know. We start asking a bunch, bunch of witnesses, and and that's wrong. You you know you are correct to point out that this is not the way to do it. Uh, but uh, I I think that may be one of the issues. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. But in but in this case, it's very clear on this point. Yeah, that you've got that equipment. Um, it's there for the purpose of recording this evidence, so you've got the best evidence you can get. It's been purchased by the taxpayers. To be there to work, you all know how to work it. So use it. Yeah. Um, there, there really is no excuse for not having your your body cam running if you've got a body cam to, for having the recording, the audio recording going on your in your cruiser if it's set up to do that. Uh, and here, you know that that three minutes of delay 
maybe he told him, you know, maybe he said, you know what, we're going to do a breath test here. So it's just going to take me a minute or so. That might have fulfilled the 10A, but there was no recording of that. And he had no recollection of having done it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, obviously this case is slightly distinguishable in that, that the Section 7 argument was not successful, and it was not successful largely because the court accepted that the officer was just under the mistaken impression that the recording was going. Yeah, I, and I think that, you know, that's a that's a reasonable thing, but I, I think it also could have factored into the 24-2. But the 24-2 analysis in the end really comes down to the, the simple thing that we see in every ASD case, and that is an ASD to start with, beginning, you know, remembering that an ASD is a 10B violation only upheld because of section one. And so it's standing on the, on a cliff, right? It's standing on the, it's the, it's the, it's the coyote, um, you know, standing over that rock ledge that's going to break off. And the moment you stomp your foot and fail to fulfill the obligations, that's it. They're not gonna, the court is not going to try and patch up an ASD test and, and the, the only one that I can think of is the, uh, is the Terjelman case, um, out of Surrey, Chad Kruger's case. That was one of the very rare occasions where during the course of an ASD test, um, the judge allowed the, uh, ASD information to go in despite the breach, but it wasn't a delay breach. It wasn't a, you know, it was a 10 B breach because he was engaging the individual to um blow in his face to blow into his face uh but you know the judge said this is a very minor breach it was only for the purpose of uh elevating his suspicion uh this is still in the circumstance where it's not admissible for the purpose of proving the impaired it's only to um admissible for the purpose of the officer uh moving to the next step which is making the asd demand yeah, it was uh, Judge Colbranson who passed away a couple of years ago who rendered that decision. Um, I've never been happy with it, but I can see his, I can see his logic. Um, but here, of course, the judge looks at it and he says, "Look, you know, <laughs> this is this is an ASD test. It's not taken pursuant to the criminal code. It's already a, a 10B violation. I'm not going to allow it to go further." Correct. Um. Moving on, since it's becoming a bit of a theme in our podcasts, I thought we'd talk again about a young driver on the North Shore. Oh my goodness. At a stupid speed. I'm kind of surprised that Mike Smith didn't contact you or I to have us on to talk about it. Maybe it's just flogging a dead horse. I don't know. Um, this was shocking. It was insane. This So this one, worse than the last one of, what was it, 180 kilometers an hour up the cut? This one is a, a driver, an L driver, not an N, L, no supervisor, too many passengers, traveling on Highway 1 in North Vancouver at 199 kilometers per hour in an 80 zone, and racing somebody else at the same time who got away that yeah looked like a a c a c-class mercedes sedan um and uh l driver 
uh, and this is like, this is the most aggravated thing. And, 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 and you and I, you said that to me, I think, um, and within a day or so, um, either you or somebody else sent me this case from a couple of years ago in the States where the officer pulled over, uh, a couple male driving, uh, like 20, early twenties couple, I think he was 24, 25, um, and, uh, issued a bunch of tickets and, and somebody else had complained and, you know, it was on the verge of a reckless and it was similar driving. And only minutes later, that individual, after driving away, rear-ended apparently a semi-trailer truck and both of those people were decapitated and the officer came upon it. Um, yeah. And you can see him on the video. Holy fuck. Holy fuck. Yeah. And there's, they're like, get clear everybody out. This is a fatality. And that the, it's a, I think it was a, uh, like a Hyundai Tiburon or something like that. It was a, like a Korean sports car, yeah, but yeah, the roof, the roof was cut off and so were their heads. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, it, it just, well, the, 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 out, the outrage and concern people have fully legitimate, like fully legitimate. Yeah. I mean, it's not, this is beyond kids will be kids. Like this is the, the, but putting a car with that much power in the hands of somebody who is as irresponsible as a 19 year old boy, right? Like, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a little bit sexist. I mean, 19 years old boy or girl or, or neither. It doesn't matter. You're, understanding of your own mortality and your obligation to other people in society in relation to mortality is just not developed like i remember the shit that i did at that age feeling like i would never die and now i'm terrified to walk downstairs because if i slip on the stairs and die that's the end of me right like yeah um yeah i mean i did a lot of bad driving um when I was a young guy too, uh, young men cars were not as safe. Um, the, uh, but they also weren't nearly as fast and they also didn't feel like you could drive at aircraft speeds, 200 kilometers an hour is aircraft speeds, right? That's what this guy was driving on a city street. Jeez, we should have, should have called this guy to give us a, a ride back from our canceled flight the other day. I don't know. Did we get a ride somewhere? No, we did, but he could have driven us 200 kilometers an hour at aircraft speeds. So, oh, yeah, well, we'll save it. Anyway, the yeah, I don't think no, 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 thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. I, I'd like to not, not die. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I mean, this is not the ridiculous driver of the week, this is a uh, ridiculously stupid driver, and but, uh, but, and, and 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 apparently was, was quite arrogant about it well, at the yeah. time, kind of like, yeah, my parents let me do this and you know and and his excuse to the police too which almost almost got him nominated as ridiculous driver of the week this week his excuse to the police was well the other guy was going faster yeah right why why are you giving me a ticket the other guy was going faster (laughs) anyway when i saw that one i thought you know what um of course, they'll make a high-risk report to the superintendent of motor vehicles, and he'll end up with a one-year driving prohibition minimum. Yeah, and you know what? As an L driver, he's under the most amount of scrutiny. Like, he also has no, like, well, of course, yeah. N drivers 
you get that high risk driving prohibition, you can write in. I mean, you're already serving it, but at least like you can say things like, I really need my car to get to work or I have to pick up my kids from school or whatever, like whatever reason you have. What's the L going to be? What's the L going to be? Because you always have to have a supervisor with you. My supervisor's always drunk and I need to drive my drunk father home. <laughs> um, my my supervisor has lost your eyesight. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what your argument is as, as an L driver. I don't think you've got much of one. I, I'm yeah. sure we can come up with one. We probably have come up with one. There's no justification you need to have a driver's license because you always have to have a licensed driver with you. So yeah. it, it doesn't work for L drivers. This guy's just going to lose. Need your uh, car. Yeah. Just going to lose the uh, lose the license. Um, yep. And that's fine. And this is one of those occasions people were talking about crush the car. They're always like, you should crush the car. Well, it's the parent's car, but um, this is the equivalent of crushing the car. He's not driving for a year. Of course, he could fall into that, you know, problem that we see of people getting prohibited and then they are prohibited forever. And then they start driving, they end up with drive while prohibited. And, you know, that's uh, always an unfortunate uh, sort of feedback loop uh, spiral spiraling down situation i don't know if you saw i sent you a case where there was a driver pulled over we've got a 30-year license suspension <laughs> 30 years since he was suspended <laughs> like okay well you know some people do a few bad things when they're young and end up with a long suspension that just ends up going on for forever one way or another even for small things after that mm-hmm. yep yeah. and but that was also not the ridiculous driver of the week actually the ridiculous driver of the week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. Is somebody or perhaps something that was not driving very well. And this perhaps leads into our, our general discussion that we've been having um, over the episodes of this podcast about the dangers of self-driving technology. Yeah, this is an interesting one because I don't, you know, it's it's a good, ridiculous driver. Yeah. But it's, it's very different. And uh, I haven't seen it reported anywhere. I just found the one mention of it. So give us the deets. So this is a man in, I think, in Scotland, I believe, Glasgow, um, who was essentially kidnapped by his own car. His electric car decided to autonomously drive and more specifically override his actions on the brake pedal. So And, this and, and he couldn't do anything about it. Couldn't break <laughs> He couldn't turn the car off. He couldn't do anything. He he had to dodge red lights. He had to like roll through roundabouts. He ended up calling, what is it, nine 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 nine? Well, phoning the police in any event, and the police came out on himself to be like, "Help! My car's gone crazy, and it won't stop." Um, and the police ended up having to like ram the car off the road. To get it to stop. And he was going. And, and it wanted to keep driving. It wanted to keep driving after that. They had to like pinch it in in order to stop it. 
because they pushed him off the road. The car kept wanting to drive. Yeah, 30, 30 miles an hour. Isn't that insane? 50 kilometers an hour. Um, and you can't turn it off because it's a press button and it wouldn't recognize the button. Recognize you can't put it in a park because there's no manual park. It's a it's electronic. Yeah. You can't, you know, the, 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 the park brake's electric. You know, I, I remember years ago I was... Uh, I had a friend who was a, uh, uh, I have a friend he, at that point, he was a consultant with, uh, with, uh, McKinsey and, um, there was, uh, lots of discussion because they, they consult with all these different car companies. And of course they can't talk to each other. Uh, but there was lots of discussion at the time, uh, about, uh, um, electrical drive by wire basically. And this has gone on for years. Like GM designed a platform decades ago drive-by-wire that every different car would be able to drop onto this platform. It'd just be some connections. Your steering would be by wire. So basically inputs rather than a, than a steering column running down. Your brakes wouldn't be uh, into a hydraulic cylinder. It's, you know, pressing against a sensor that would tell the brakes. Um, and same with the accelerator. And, you know, I was arguing with him at the time. He was saying, look, this is, makes perfect sense. We know that, you know, GM's had this for years. Volkswagen's working on it. Everybody's got it. Um, nobody's been willing to use it, but this is coming. Airbus is fly-by-wire, right? All new airplanes are fly-by-wire now. When they came into uh, aircraft, it was a big discussion about it. Well, now we've moved to fully drive-by-wire in the sense that you can't override a bunch of these things and you can't turn it off. Can't press the clutch and glide to a stop. Which is super, super safe. Well, it's, it's like a nightmare scenario. Somebody's going to write a film about it at one point. It's kind of like being in Christine <laughs> in the film and Christine, Christine's taking over. Like it's, it's, it's like your car is haunted. It's possessed. There, there was, when we were in Atlanta, one of our friends there who was telling us about her Tesla and she's been having this ongoing problem with her Tesla where she'll park her Tesla, like in a, in a valet give it to the ballet and then the tesla just won't move it won't do anything it won't respond to the gas it won't turn on or off it's just stuck like it's just refused to participate in life any longer it's uh um it's fascinating i'm wondering about like teslas have uh, a feature where you could summon your car and we've seen this on various occasions where people like summoned their car in a parking lot, not their driveway or something like that. Um, and uh, what happens when you got people in the car or that it thinks you're summon summoning it? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm scared of it. I, I think you should have a big switch in there or something that you can press to turn the damn thing off and recover your steering and brakes. I, I mean, even like, you know, how long have we had computer technology? And yet every once in a while, you just have to unplug your computer or, or not a, not a reboot it, yeah, reboot it, hard reset. Um, you know, you get your phone. Sometimes you need to hard reset your phone, but you can't do that with a car when you're careening down with a roadway at 50 kilometers an hour. Well, Apple puts in billions of dollars of investment and testing and research into their new iPhones. And then every time they release an iPhone within 48 hours, they're they're sending out a massive uh, uh, update on 
the software because something's been identified that's wrong. These car companies are not spending that much effort and energy and testing as Apple is. I got my new iPhone and it got ridiculously hot when I was making a video. And yesterday I got the update that's supposed to fix that. Um, but you think about like these automotive manufacturers, they have trouble getting the people to do programming. Uh, think how many like demands there are out there in, in government for people to do programming. Uh, and you think of the demands that they're, they're fighting in for in, in these, uh, car companies to get people who can come and make this technology, you know, function in a manner that's flawless. It's a problem. Good. So anyway, it's a great, ridiculous, uh, car of the week. The car is the driver. <laughs> that's why it's the ridiculous driving thing of the week. <laughs> now. Yeah, it's uh... and, and, and we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more, you know, self-driving cars are going to be, there's going to be an entire world of self-driving car law develop. Great. Um, you know, who is responsible if he had an accident in that car? I assume you know, it's I guess. Well, well, I guess. Yeah. I mean, but you know, probably his insurance is still going to be covering it. Um, but what happens if he you know, like fails to somehow say he doesn't phone nine one one fast enough? Thing drives through school zone and plows down a bunch of kids. You know, I I don't know. I I, I just think like then you have to prove your innocence. Yeah. Good luck with that. This guy, you know, was at least on the phone with the police. What happens if you're trying to explain it after the fact? If it if in the first thirty seconds where you're still trying to, or two minutes where you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on, yeah. your car runs up somebody down. I'll tell you right now, you know, you'll end up in handcuffs sitting in a jail cell and having to defend yourself. But also, when you think, about, think about the defenses in criminal cases. No, it wasn't me that was driving drunk. My car was doing it. Yeah. Well, and you think about the car company is going to want to do everything to to uh, put you under the bus, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like we have Tesla refusing to provide information out of their servers to the police in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands... Uh, police figured out how to extract it somehow. Um, but, um, you know, the car company, last thing they want to do is take responsibility. They want to point the finger at you. Yep. The driver. Yeah. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I've got the 1972 international out for my winter driving and the weather's been lovely. So I've been driving my 1971 Chevy and, uh, the whole time I'm become autonomous. Neither one are going to try and uh, a solar flare won't, you know, destroy their silicone chip. Um, the, uh, if, if zombies come, I can run them over in those vehicles. There's no airbags going to blow off in my face. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, I don't have to worry about either one of them unless they are possessed like Christine, which seems more remote than, uh, an electronic electric, uh, car taking over. Well, there you go. So you're probably safe. Probably safe. You can only hope. Yeah. Uh, okay. I guess that's the podcast, huh? Yes, that's our podcast. If you have a driving law related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.